Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So as uh, Adam alluded to, we're in a sermon series, our Advent series, uh, and we're looking at the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses of John. When you think about Christmas and you think about the New Testament, you have the, uh, the birth narratives about Jesus. Those are found in Matthew and in Luke, the, uh, the stories that we're familiar with of shepherds and wise men and um, Mary and Joseph and angels, those types of things. Matthew and Luke, those birth narratives kind of tell you what happened, but John's concern is not so much with what happened, but what does it all mean? All right, John, John wants to know, wants you to know, who is this baby? Who is this Jesus? And we've been looking at that he is the word, that he is the light, and this morning we're going to see that he is the glory of God. So... Uh, stand if you're willing and able. We'll give our attention to God's word. I'm going to read from John 1, verse 1, and then skip to verse 14 and verse 18. So hear God's word for you this morning. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. And the word, Jesus, was with God. And the word, Jesus was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known." Oftentimes when we read the scriptures, we say uh, in this church, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Um, Do you know what that really means? He's not, in uh, Isaiah 40, he's actually not talking about grass and flowers. When you read that verse in context, it says, all people are like grass, and all their beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. You wither. Your beauty fades. All of our glory that we think we have will pass away. But the word of God endures forever. Amen. You may be seated, please. So have you ever seen something that took your breath away? Maybe it was an awe-inspiring landscape in nature. Maybe it was a a, a magnificent work of art. Maybe it was um, a, a beautifully architected building. Maybe it was a precious newborn baby. Have you ever seen something so amazing that you just couldn't forget it? 
Well, the disciple John makes an extraordinary statement at the beginning of his gospel. Speaking about Jesus, the word, he says, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. The same John said in one of his other letters in 1 John, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon and touched with our hands, this word of life, the life made manifest, we've seen it and testified to it, proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We have seen his glory. Sometimes at Christmas we sing, do you see what I see? Do you? Have you seen his glory? There are lots of things to see at Christmas time, aren't there? Lights, decorations, presents, parties, concerts, shopping, food, movies, and yes, Jesus. (laughs) There is Jesus right in the middle of all of the Christmas stuff in his nativity. I know you've seen him, but have you seen his glory? A lot of people saw Jesus in his 33 years on earth, but not everyone who saw Jesus saw his glory. You can go to church your whole life. You can see Jesus in the rituals and the traditions of church, but not see his glory. I had lunch with a couple this week who had that kind of story. They, they came to Seven Rivers thinking that they knew God, and yet as they were describing their experience in the service on the weekends, they said, it's, it's, it's something, something new when, when we're singing the songs and praying the prayers and hearing the sermons. It's like there's this, this glow, this, this warmth, this, this joy. They were just struggling to find words to describe it. What were they trying to describe? Glory. They're seeing his glory for the first time. Have you seen his glory? You know, glory is talked about in the Bible over 600 times. Uh, it might be the most important truth to understand about God. In fact, we, we could say that the story of the Bible is, is really the drama of God's glory. Um, trying to capture the full meaning of glory, though, is difficult. Um, Trying to capture the full meaning of glory is like trying to, to capture the ocean in a bucket. The, the Old Testament word for glory is the word kavod. It, it, it connotates weightiness, uh, significance, uh, honor, dignity. The New Testament word for glory is the, the Greek word doxa. It, 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 um, it means reputation, praise, fame. So what is God's glory? Well, here here are a couple of definitions. Uh, God's glory is the magnificence, the worth, the grandeur of his manifold perfections. God's glory is his inexpressible loveliness and majesty. God's glory is his pure and terrifying holiness made manifest. God's glory is the splendor and Brilliance that is inseparably associated with all of his attributes and his self-revelation in creation and redemption. Pastor John Piper says that glory, the word glory is more like the word um, beauty than it is like the word basketball. And so if, if someone said, um, 
What is a basketball? Define basketball. You could say, well, it's this, it's this round-shaped thing that uh, is covered in leather or rubber, you know, stitched together, and you, uh, you pump it full of air, and it, and it gets, it gets kind of hard, and you can throw it on the ground, and it bounces back up at you, and, and, uh, and you use it in this game where there's, there's this hoop that's up in the air, and, and, and people call it a basket, and so you throw, the, throw this thing in the basket. That's why it's called a basketball, and then you could define this thing, and someone could be at the store, and they could see it, and they could say, oh, yeah, that's a basketball, right? It looks different than a football or a soccer ball or a tennis ball. But if, but if someone said to you, define beauty, now that's getting closer to glory, right? Piper says, you know, there are some words in our vocabulary that when we communicate with, we, we do so not because we can say them, but because we can see them. We can, we can point, we can, if we pointed enough things and say enough times, that's it, that's it, that's it then we know what it means. Have you seen the glory of God? Can you point to it? The disciples saw Jesus' glory, and it changed them forever. And that's what I'm praying for you this morning, that you would see his glory, that in the middle of this Advent season, God will open your eyes, that the Holy Spirit will give you faith to see the glory of Jesus. Dane Ortland writes in his book, Deeper, Um, He says, the temptation for many of us is to assume that we pretty much know what Jesus is like. We have a domesticated view of Jesus, not a heterodox view. We We are fully orthodox in our Christology. We understand that he came from heaven as the son of God to live the life that we cannot live and die the death we deserve to die. We affirm his glorious resurrection. We confess with the ancient creeds that he is truly God and truly man. We don't uh, have a heterodox view. We have a domesticated view that for all its doctrinal precision has downsized the glory of Christ in our hearts. Let me suggest that you consider the possibility that your current mental idea of Jesus is just the tip of the iceberg, that there are wondrous depths to him, realities about him still awaiting your discovery. Have you reduced Jesus to a safe containable, predictable Savior who pitches in and helps out your otherwise smoothly running existence? Have you treated what is spiritually nuclear as a double-A battery? Resist the tendency we all have to whittle him down to our preconceived expectation of what he must be like. Let him surprise you. Let his fullness arrest you and buoy you along. Let him be a big Christ. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to let him be a big Christ. Take your sermon outline if you want to follow along that way, and let's talk about seeing his glory. Seeing his glory. First, who Jesus is. We see his glory in who Jesus is. And Jesus one time asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, the, the, the popular consensus is that people say you are a prophet, You're like John the Baptist or Elijah. And and Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the son of the living God. You're the Christ. Jesus said to him, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. God has revealed that to you. He's opened your eyes to to see that. Um, 
John is as clear as it gets about who Jesus is here. Can you see it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is God, existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, he He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. John and the disciples said, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. That phrase, the only, he, he uses that to describe Jesus in verse 18 as the only God, right? The only son, the only God. That, that word in the Greek is the word monogenes. It means unique, one of a kind, right? There's no one else like him. that Jesus Christ is the unique, one-of-a-kind Son of the Father. He's the unique, one-of-a-kind God. This is is startling for if you're a Jew, because in Isaiah 42, 8, God declares, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with another. But John says of Jesus, we have seen his glory. Glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Jesus Christ is God, co-equal, co-eternal, of the same nature and glory as the Father. We read it earlier in the uh, service from Hebrews 1 where the author says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Paul says in Colossians 1 that he's the image of the invisible God, that in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You know, it's interesting to think that Christians today sometimes argue about um, politics and uh, worship styles, maybe baptism. Um, but do you know what the first Christians argued about? The early Christians didn't argue about that stuff. They argued about the deity of Christ, right? Is Jesus God? Because if he's not God, then who cares about that other stuff, right? We're just wasting our time. Is Jesus God? So the early councils and the creeds were focused around these core issues. The Council of Nicaea in 325 produced what we call the Nicene Creed uh, that churches have professed now for almost 2,000 years. Um, I want us to say part of it together. Let's, uh, let's, Let's profess this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Jesus, right? God of God, light of light, very God of very God. So one of the bishops who was present at the Council of Nicaea was Nicholas of Myra. Uh, Nicholas of, uh, of Myra, about a thousand years after his death, the Catholic Church made him a saint. Saint Nicholas. Nicholas uh, was of Myra, as best we know, um, was born in around 270, 280 in uh, Patara, which is on the southern coast of Turkey. And um, his uh, parents were believers, they were Christians, and so they um, raised him to follow Jesus. And at some point, a plague came through, and his parents died and left Nicholas with a, um, an inheritance, but also with this sense of calling, uh, of, of wanting to serve the Lord. And, uh, and so um, one of the stories we have down from history that we believe is true is that Nicholas, when he was a young man, not yet a bishop or a leader in the church, um, but when he was a young man, heard of a father in his town uh, who had lost all of his wealth, and was in this destitute position, um, was, uh, was struggling so much that he was, this father was considering selling his three daughters into slavery and prostitution, right? Parents, you know, we can't imagine doing something like that, but, but we have record in, in the ancient uh, uh, things that, that say that this kind of thing happened, um, but can you imagine the place that you'd have to get to, the kind of desperation you'd have to have to be willing to part with your children? So Nicholas hears about this man and, uh, and wants to help him, but also doesn't want any credit for it. And so Nicholas, in the, in the middle of the night, goes to the man's house and throws a bag of gold through the open window and watches to see what the father will do with it. The father takes the gold and he uses it to, uh, as a dowry to marry his oldest daughter uh, and get her out of this destitute condition. And so Nicholas, seeing how the father used the money, decides that he's going to return another night and uh, throws another bag of gold through the window. And then again, a third time. And, uh, and by, by the third time, the, this father really wants to know who is this benefactor, right? Who is this person who is uh, helping me? And so when he, the third time, hears the bag of gold hit the ground, he rushes out the door and he catches Nicholas there and he uh, asks him who he is, you know, gets his identity and, uh, and asks, why are you doing this? And Nicholas says, well, I'm, I'm doing this because I love the Lord, right? Because, because I want, I uh, saw you, somebody in need and I wanted to help uh, but but don't, don't tell anybody about this. You know, I don't want any recognition for this. Well, obviously that father did tell somebody about it and you can hear the echoes, right? In that story of how that then probably became um, who we think of now when we say Saint uh, Nicholas. But Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea. Nicholas was there as a bishop 
at this council where they were, they were arguing about, is Jesus God? And, and uh, the story goes, one that we're less sure is true, but the tradition is that um, Nicholas is there and uh, Arius, who is the, the lead kind of heretic who's, who's espousing this view that Jesus is not God. He's a created uh, being, but he's not, he's not God. He's not the son of God. And, uh, and so the story goes that Nicholas is so incensed at what Arius is teaching. He's, he's so impassioned and jealous for the glory of God that he goes up to Arius and he punches him, right? Not very Santa-like, I know. But, um, and so you'll see memes around this time of year that talk about St. Nicholas, like this one, right? I came to give presents to kids and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents, Isn't that fascinating? The true St. Nicholas was part of the Council of Nicaea that affirmed for all of Christendom that it really is true. Jesus is God. That's what Christmas is about. We have seen his glory. Have you seen his glory? So, not only... Um, does John say we've seen his glory not only in who Jesus is, but second, also what Jesus did. We've seen his glory in what he did. The glory of what Jesus did is particularly related in John 1 here to his incarnation, right? his entering the world. What is Christmas all about? It's about an historical fact, Something that happens in real time and space. John says Jesus did three things. I want you to see the glory of these three things. That he became flesh, he dwelt among us, and he's made the Father known. Those are the three things that John points out here, right? The second person of the Trinity, the Word, became flesh. That is, Jesus was and still is fully God and fully man. He is the God-man. But John didn't use the Greek word for man. He used the the word sarx, flesh. He became flesh. It it communicates not only that he was fully human, but that he, he entered into our weakness. He took on our flesh, right? That um, the powerful word of God was born into frail humanity. The glory of the incarnation, God became flesh, is that he was born in a barn, in a feeding trough, in an out-of-the-way place to an ordinary couple. Do you see his glory in his humility? He came not as a king to be coronated. He came as a refugee to be executed. His glory Paul captures this dynamic in Philippians 2 in what is sometimes called the Christ hymn, right? That though he was in the form of God, Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
the glory of Jesus becoming flesh. I, uh, I, I love Christmas lights, and I've told you before that I love to decorate our house. Every year I try to add something new, so we're getting to the point now we, have, we just have lots of lights. The kids love to go out there and play at night in the, the glow of the lights, and, and um, so I just love that kind of stuff. And because of that, I love, there's a show that runs this time of year called The Great Christmas Light Fight, right, where these, uh, these families, sometimes whole neighborhoods, they uh, compete against each other to see who can, you know, who can personally put the greatest drain on their city's electric grid, right? And so the way it works is that uh, there's judges and they go to the, the different houses and uh, they, they get to like flip a switch or hit a button or do something that, that causes all the lights to come on for the first time. And their reaction is always this, the same. It's always like, wow. That's amazing. I can't believe that, right? Because they're, they're seeing like roller coasters and, and millions and millions of lights. They got like robots and 40-foot tall blow-ups. I mean, just these like over-the-top uh, bells and whistles, all these things. And, uh, and they're always, you know, wow. And we were watching the other night, and there was one that stood out to me because it was completely different from all the rest. And what stood out to me was the reaction of the judge to it because of it. So I want you to see, it's about a minute long. Her reaction, right, catches her by surprise because she's so used to seeing the big, bright, all of the, and she sees Jesus laying in the manger and she starts to cry because she's seeing the glory of God. The glory of God in that he became flesh for us. Have you experienced it? Can you see it? John says the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally translated tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. Why, why is that significant? The, the tabernacle was a kind of tent that, the, that God instructed the Israelites to, to put up and take down as they traveled around. And the tabernacle was where God uh, the glory of God would descend and Moses would go in and meet with God uh, in the tabernacle. It was, um, God was not contained to the tabernacle, but it was a physical sign to the people that he was with them, that he was in their 
midst. When the Israelites entered the promised land, the tabernacle became the temple, the place where the glory of God was made manifest in the presence of his people. Moses one time, uh, he goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, the people rebel. They make a golden calf. He comes down and uh, breaks the commandments. Incensed, God says, I'm done with these people, right? And uh, God tells Moses, I'm not going with you anymore. You guys go on, but I'm not going with you. And Moses pleads with God on behalf of the people, if you're not going to go with us, if your presence won't go with us, if your glory won't accompany us, then don't send us out from here. And then Moses asks God something so bold. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, to which God says, you can't see my full glory, but I'll let you see part of it. And I'll let you see, he says, my backside as I pass by. And, um, and Moses, when he meets with God, when he comes out of the tent of meeting, the, the, the Bible says that his face would shine. It would be like luminescent, so much so that he had to put a veil over his face uh, because the people could not um, look, uh, look at him. Isaiah... Later, when he's speaking of this Messiah and what shall he be named, says his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. That's what tabernacling is. In the New Testament, uh, there is an event called the Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain, and Jesus kind of gives them a sneak peek to his glory. Like, it's kind of like Clark Kent who, like, opens up his shirt and, like, lets you see the little S underneath, right? And, 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 and he is shining brightly, full of glory up there. And, and, um, and they see his glory. And they also see that with Jesus, talking with Jesus, is Moses and Elijah. And, uh, and, and Peter says, this is awesome, God. This is awesome. Let's make three tabernacles. Let's make three tents. One for you, Jesus, one for you, Moses, one for you. And as he's saying that, this voice from heaven says, shut up, (laughs) essentially. This is my son. This is my beloved. Listen to him, right? Peter wanted to say, this is great. We'll make three equal tents. Jesus, you're on par with Moses and Elijah. God says, no, no, this is my son. He is the one who has glory, My beloved. Um, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that when we come to Jesus, the veil is lifted. The veil that Moses had over his face. We see his glory. He, He opens up the shirt. We get to see his glory. Have you seen his glory? He dwelt with us. God with us. And then John says, he has made the Father known. Right? He, he became flesh, he dwelt among us, and he's made the Father known. It's, could be kind of confusing because John says, we've seen his glory, but then he says, no one has ever seen God. So how, how does that work? Well, he's referring to the Old Testament, right? That it is true, no one ever fully saw God. Moses didn't get a full view of God's glory. Right? The, when, when God manifested himself in the Old Testament to people, they never saw him in his, in his glory and fully. 
No one has ever seen God, but the only, the one of a kind, word become flesh, God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, just stop a minute and think about that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The phrase that that John uses here, that Jesus is at the Father's side, you might have a footnote in your Bible that it's literally in the Greek, the only God who is in the bosom of the Father. Or another translation is the only God who is close to the Father's heart. Jesus, in the bosom of the Father, close to his heart. What does Jesus make known to us? He makes known to us the Father's heart. Some of us have this sneaking suspicion that there is a God behind Jesus who can't be trusted. That Jesus is full of grace and truth. We like him, but God the Father is different. He's harsh. He's demanding. He's never pleased. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus reveals the heart of the Father. What is God like? The Christian answer is Jesus Christ. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. There is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. Moses said, show me your glory, Lord, to which God said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass before you, by which I infer that glory and goodness go together. God's glory is his goodness. That's his heart. The glory of Christmas is that you have a father who is full of grace and truth. And out of his heart of love, he sent his one and only son so that when you believe in him, you get to experience his goodness, his glory for all eternity. You know, one of the most prolific songwriters in the history of Christianity was Fanny Crosby. She wrote over 9,000 spiritual hymns She was blinded in both eyes at six weeks old because of a medical error. But um, listen to some of these things she wrote in her hymns. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Watching and waiting, looking above. Near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever. Pure and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. She couldn't see, but she could. She had the eyes of faith to see his glory. Have you seen his glory? So then third and finally, if Jesus is God, if he became flesh, if he dwelt among us, if he has made the Father known, if we have seen his glory, how should we respond? What should be our response? Well, we, we respond to glory by glorifying. Right? You respond to glory by glorifying. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? What is the ultimate purpose? Why were you created? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, when we When we glorify God, what that means is we're not making God more glorious when we glorify him. 
You know, if you go to the Grand Canyon and you think, I'm going to make the Grand Canyon more glorious. So you go down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon with a shovel and you dig a hole in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You make it that much deeper. You just made the Grand Canyon more glorious, right? No. You can't go to the Grand Canyon and make it more glorious, but you can go to the Grand Canyon and stand on the edge and just be in awe. That's what it means to glorify something. To glorify God is not to make God more glorious. It is to recognize, enjoy, and praise him as glorious. The New City Catechism says uh, in question six, how can we glorify God? And the answer given is we glorify God by enjoying him, by loving him, by trusting him, and by obeying his will and commands and law. That's what it means to glorify God. Jonathan Edwards said this, he said, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory then is received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, and that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his praise of it and his delight in it. We were made to reflect the glory of God. Just like when you go out tonight and um, if you see the moon and uh, you see the light of the moon, you think, wow, that light, uh, that moon is, is, is casting great light onto the earth. Well, guess what? That light isn't coming from the moon. That light is coming from the sun. The moon is reflecting the light of the sun. We are called to reflect the glory of the sun. Right? Um, in um, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil of Moses is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there, are free, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, reflecting his glory, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Glorifying God is as all-encompassing as God's glory itself. The Reformer said, all of life is to be lived solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So if you're a Christian here this morning, if you have truly seen his glory, then I believe that he's saying to you right now through the Holy Spirit, I want you to enjoy me. I want you to love me. I want you to trust me. I want you to obey me. I want you to glorify me. God is laying something on your heart right now, a way that he wants you to glorify him. You know, I can't respond to God's glory for you. Your spouse can't respond to God's glory for you. Your parent can't respond to God's glory for you. 
How are you going to respond to the glory of God in Jesus Christ? Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.